Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning again. I am so thankful that you have come out to worship with us on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is a huge blessing. What a blessing it is to come together to worship God through singing, through learning of truths, through the reading of God's word, through hearing it preached, through gathering around the Lord's table. This is a blessing and a privilege. And we here believe... We've, you know, we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. We touched on it in Sunday school this morning, but we truly believe that hearing the word of God read is the exact same thing as if God were to rip the roof off the building and speak directly. In addressing the Sadducees, Jesus said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? It's an interesting phrasing. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus is saying that the reading of God's word is the same as hearing God speak directly. Why do I bring this up? Why do I open this? Well, we have reached the point in the Gospel of Matthew. We've reached the culmination of the book. We have come to the crucifixion of Christ. We've been working since we started as a church, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. And now, two years later, almost exactly two years later, we are now at the crucifixion. So I bring up the fact that the reading of God's word is the same as hearing him speak because we have a lot to read this morning. There are typically two ways that you can cover the crucifixion. You can either go really in-depth in every single detail because there's so much here. And that is a beautiful way to cover it. And I hope perhaps in coming years to do an Easter service, you know, a series leading up to Easter where we do, we cover in-depth everything that's happening. But another way to cover the crucifixion is just to take a step back and view the entire account as a whole. There is so much that happens just in these hours, in these mere hours of Christ's life. There is so much fulfillment of prophecy. And sometimes it's good for us to just get the full picture of everything that happened in this incredible event. So as you look in your bulletin, you see there are tons of passages written. This morning we're covering 105 verses. So if I seem a little consumed into my notes, it's because if I don't stick to my notes, we're going to be here for like three and a half hours. Okay? So we all want to eat, right? So I'm going to stay, try and stay really close to my notes this morning so that we can get through this. But I wanted to intro by saying, remember, as we're reading these passages, it is the same thing. From the mouth of Christ, it is the same thing as if God ripped the roof off the building and was speaking directly to us. So let's open with the word of prayer and then let us hear God speak to us. Heavenly Father, God, this morning as we dive into this passage, dealing with the grace that you've given us, the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Christ, 
Lord, I pray that you would be with us. God, I pray that you would open our hearts. God, I pray that as we hear your word read, that we we would know what it is, that it is your word, that it has authority over our lives, that it is true. So Lord, we ask that you would be with us. God, we are about to go into a world that is hostile to your word, to you, even to us. We need encouragement, God. We need to meet with you in a real way this morning. Give us strength, give us courage, and let us go from here and do the work of the ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start this reading. We just covered last week, we covered Jesus having the last Passover with the disciples and instituting the Lord's Supper. So this is picking up directly after this. After the Lord's Supper, hear the words of Scripture. Matthew 26, 30 through 35. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. You see, in these verses, we see Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. Jesus has just celebrated Passover. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. They sing a hymn and they go out and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And apparently on the way, Jesus prophesies that all of them will fall away. And this prophecy is contained specifically within Zechariah, that he will strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And he also says that there is hope that he will rise again and he will go ahead of them to Galilee. But Peter, as he is beholden to do, jumps up and is the spokesperson of the disciples. He says, Jesus, I will not deny you. Even if everyone else falls away, I'm going to be there with you regardless of what happens. And then Jesus gives the very specific prophecy that before the rooster crows, Peter will have denied Christ three times. He prophesies the exact description of how Peter would deny him. And we must notice that Jesus, again, all throughout Matthew, Jesus has tied everything back to the fulfillment of prophecy. Again and again, I've reminded you, Matthew is written to a first century Jewish audience. And one of the purposes of the book is Matthew is declaring that Christ is the king and that Christ is the fulfillment of all of the prophecy in the Old Testament. That's been one of the central themes. And so Jesus, again, ties all of this back to the fulfillment of prophecy. And we're reminded again and again that this is exactly how God planned it. And this is a truth that we can't miss throughout the crucifixion, throughout everything that has happened, is that God is sovereign over all. And so everything, not one detail of the crucifixion was outside of God's plan. We've seen that again and again throughout Matthew. And he notes it once again. Even the disciples being scattered is all according to God's determined plan for the salvation of mankind. Continuing on, Matthew 26, 36 through 46 says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be grieved and distressed. 
And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And when he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watch and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping and their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This passage opens by saying Jesus is grieved. Charles Spurgeon says this, Then came that desperate struggle in which the great captain of our salvation wrestled even to a bloody sweat and prevailed. Jesus says that his soul is so grieved that it is grieved to the point of death. I think of what that must be like. I think all of us have experienced sorrow. Many of us have experienced great sorrow and grief. But this grief that Jesus is describing is deep, deep in his heart. It is a cutting grief. He is grieved to the point of death. This is the start of the darkest and the hardest moment for our Lord. But we have to ask, what made this so difficult for him? What was it about this moment that made it so difficult? It wasn't merely the crucifixion. Again, I think Spurgeon has great insight. Listen to this. Christ was not afraid to die. What was it then that made that cup so terrible? After dwelling in the love of God from all eternity, he was in a few hours to bear the punishment of man's sin. Jesus was made sin for us. He was to come under the curse for us. He was to feel the Father's wrath on account of human guilt. And his whole nature, not only his flesh, but his whole being, shrank from that fearful ordeal. We see here the true humanity of Christ. I mean, truly, Hebrews 4 14 through 15 is right. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. This is a beautiful thing. I wish I could spend all morning just on this one passage. Christ can fully and truly identify with us in our pain. I think of that. God, eternal, Christ, truly God, truly man, can identify with us in our pain. He experienced fear and dread. His divine nature did not remove the ability to feel fear and pain. We also know that Jesus has full knowledge of God's plan here. Jesus knows what the Father's sovereign plan is, but it it doesn't comfort him in this moment. Oftentimes, when we look at the plan of God, it brings comfort, but there are moments where the grief is so deep, so gut-wrenching, so hard, 
that it cuts through even knowing the plan of God. But I think this passage gives us hope. I think this passage leaves us in a great place because if we're not careful as Christians, we can see sorrow and grief as sinful. We can, we can mistakenly view going through horrible times in life and feeling sorrowful, even to the point of death, even feeling so grieved that you feel you're dying inside. And we can go, no, that's sinful. I can't count the number of times where people have made, I've heard people make statements within the church like, oh, a Christian can't truly be depressed. I mean, that is a horrible statement. There are moments in life where we are truly grieved, but we are not alone in this emotion. Christ in the garden without sin felt true grief. He even longed for a different plan. He knew the plan of God and he begged God, Lord, if there's any way, any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so, but not my will, but thine be done. However, Jesus went through this pain alone. His closest friends abandoned him in his hour of need. Yes, they would be scattered, but this is the time. This was their moment and they failed. I hesitate to say that Jesus needed them, but we know that he longed for their company and their companionship and the disciples failed and Jesus went through this pain alone. You see, our hope is that we are never alone in these moments, but Christ experienced this isolated. And again, we see Jesus' foreknowledge of what is happening. His divine knowledge, touching his divinity, he knew even the moment that Judas was approaching. In Matthew 26, 46 through 56, it says this, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up And with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Therefore, how will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Judas finishes what he started. If we remember, we touched on the gospel of John last week and Jesus told him at the supper, do what you're going to do quickly. And Judas does this. The betrayer comes to him, but he keeps the language of friendship. Judas approaches Christ and he greets him with a kiss. We know that this seems friendly, but inside Judas is a devil at work. And then John explains who it was. It was Peter, but Peter pulls his sword and cuts off the servant's ear. 
You see, Peter is attempting to defend the Lord, but Christ then says that he could appeal to the Father. And 12 legions of angels would come to his defense. Now, a little bit of backstory history. A legion is roughly three to 6,000 men. And so Jesus is saying, with a word, he could easily summon 72,000 angels to come and defend him. That's an incredible force. And we must note that this makes it clear. Christ went to the cross willingly. You know, in our modern day, there is much objection to this doctrine. There's much objection to the doctrine that the Father sent the Son to die. Like, there's great objection throughout the church to this. No, God did not kill his Son. I even think of very famous debates within like the last 10 years, the monster God debate and things like that, where one side is proclaiming that, no, God did not kill Jesus. There's no way that God executed his son. There's no way that God sent his son on purpose to die. Right? Now, as good Orthodox Christians, we go, wait, yeah, he did. But this is the beauty of this. Because you see, it is the Father's plan. The Father sent Christ to accomplish this. But Christ went willingly. I think of Vodi Bakum who says, did God kill Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus go to the cross willingly? Yes. And that's the beauty of this. At any moment, Christ could summon an army of angels and wipe everyone out. One of the gospel accounts details that as these men approach Christ and they say, are you Jesus? He says, I am. And the force of him speaking those words blasts them off their feet. We must remember, this is Christ who spoke the universe into existence with a word. He could end it all. But he willingly offers himself up to these men. To the point that his final miracle before the crucifixion is healing the man's ear. He willingly goes. But Jesus also points out the illegitimate nature of the arrest. These men came together in the dead of night and arrested him. He preached in the temple every day. Legally, in order to make an arrest, you couldn't do it in the dead of night when everyone was asleep. That was the law of the day. So the very arrest is illegal. And then Jesus closes by saying that this, again, that phrase in Matthew that is so common, all of this must take place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Let's pick up our next passage, verses 57 through 68. Now those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they may put him to death. And they did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And the high priest tore his garment and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, O Christ, who is the one who hit you? You see, the ones who were plotting to kill Jesus have assembled to commit their filthy act. To his credit, St. Peter did follow Jesus at a distance. He follows him all the way to the temple court, keeping his distance, but he is following. However, we know that in the next passage, he betrays Christ. But in general, Christ has been abandoned. I mean, if we think about the order of circumstances, likely the only one of the 12 that is there with Christ is Judas, the one who has betrayed him. R.C. Sproul says regarding this passage, when we read these texts, we're not only interested in history lessons. As important as history lessons may be, when we read the word of God, we always should be looking for ways in which the scripture applies to us today. It was and is typical of the followers of Jesus to put a distance between themselves and their Lord when the moment of crisis comes. When our well-being is threatened, it is easy to retreat So we have to ask ourselves, have we been a part of Jesus' band of followers when he was arrested? Would we have fled? Or would we have kept a safe distance from him? I think that's a pertinent question. How would we have reacted in that moment? In the time of crisis, do we abandon our Lord or do we cling to him as our everything? But it is noted specifically that the testimony brought against Jesus is false. They cannot bring a consistent witness. This is very important, especially reading in the law of God. No one is permitted to be put to death unless there is agreement between two or three witnesses. That is God's requirement for execution. There must be agreement between two or three witnesses. But they cannot get the witnesses to agree. It is obvious, painfully obvious, that everyone who is coming up against Christ is a false witness. But even these false witnesses, it's so interesting to note the wording of the text because even these false witnesses could not come up with anything against Christ. I mean, think about it. If you were going to pay off a witness to be a false witness in a trial, it would be expected that they would be able to bring something good. I mean, if they're already a false witness, they're going to lie about this person. But somehow, in, in, in the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, these false witnesses were, were kept from condemning Christ. But eventually, two witnesses do come forward and they're able to bring Jesus' teaching about the temple. Remember, Jesus spoke about the, you know, he was pointing out the temple and he spoke and he says, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And it's very clear he's talking about his body, right? But these men are somehow able to twist the words of Christ and go, well, he, he, he threatened to destroy the temple. That's the only accusation they can bring against him is that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple. And then the chief priest adjures him by the name of God to answer if he is the Christ. Right? Here is the pivotal question. Jesus, are you the Christ? And Jesus replies in a common affirmation of the day. You have said it. Literally what this affirmation means, we hear Jesus use it quite regularly. What it literally means is what you said is true. So if he says, you have said it, he says, the words that just came out of your mouth are true. Are you the Christ? Yes. 
This is one of the clearest moments of Jesus admitting to being Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the sent one from God. Those who say that Jesus never admitted to being God must ignore passages like this. And the high priest tore his robes in anger because he knew that Jesus had just admitted to being God. And they condemn him to death for blasphemy. They sentenced Jesus to death after this hung trial in the middle of the night. It was a false trial and a false conviction. But then comes the beginning of Jesus' passion. See, the emotional turmoil has begun. But now the physical abuse begins. They begin to beat him. They begin to spit in his face. You know, oftentimes, some of the ancient practices don't make sense to us in passages like this. Like, they're, they're beyond us. We have to study. We have to try and understand what these ancient practices mean. But the act of spitting in someone's face, I think, is very clear to us. It is a vitriol to spit in someone's face. And they begin to do this, spit in his face and beat him and strike him and say, Jesus, prophesy, who hit you? But then they move on, verses 69 through 75. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he'd gone out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he cried bitterly. This this is a tragic passage. As we walk through the gospel, there's there's no denying that Peter loved Christ, right? I mean, Peter had been the one who had spoken the words. Remember when when Jesus took the disciples out and he said, "Who, who do people say that I am? And the disciples go, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the other prophets, you know, Uh, you're just a prophet. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks, but who do you say I am? Peter was the one that spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, Peter was the one who did that. And and Jesus says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church, right? Like he praises him and he lauds him. Peter, you did not determine this through your own mind, but it was revealed to you by God. I mean, think back to the passage in John. We brought up in Sunday school uh, last week where the crowds had followed Jesus. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and the crowds are following Jesus. And then Jesus begins to teach them. And he says, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot be my disciple. How does Peter respond to that? The crowds leave because it's a hard teaching. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, in essence, what Peter is saying is, where else are we going to go? What about another passage where Where Jesus says that unless you hate your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, you cannot love me. And Peter turns to Christ and says, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. 
And they had, right? They'd given up their livelihoods, their relationships, and they followed Christ. There's, there's no denying that Peter loved his Lord. In fact, all of the others are scattered, but Peter, there's something about him. He follows at a distance. He has to follow. And one can clearly picture this scene, right? Peter is afraid. His whole world has been tipped upside down. Peter was probably one of the most strong among the disciples who believed that Jesus was physically establishing the kingdom in their midst. That the Roman Empire would crumble and Christ's kingdom would arise in their generation. That Jesus was going to establish it by force. But see, he had missed, he had missed it. He'd missed the fact that Christ was going to die. He didn't understand when Jesus said that he was going to be handed over. But now, in front of his eyes, he's watched Christ be handed over to the Jewish leadership. They've been taken to the chief priests who openly hated and opposed Christ. His entire world is falling apart. And in this moment, in this hurtful, broken moment, Peter fails. He's questioned by a servant girl. And he denies that he even knows Christ. I mean, out of anyone to be afraid of in that moment, he did not need to fear a slave. And then a second slave comes to him. And he denies again, this point invoking an oath upon himself. He invokes an oath upon himself that he did not know Christ. Before God, I do not know this man. And then the crowds begin to say, yeah, you're from the Nazareth area. We can tell by the way you talk. You were with Jesus. And Peter begins to curse and swear. And you can picture the scene, right? He begins to swear, I do not know the man, screaming out vitriol words. And at that moment, he quiets and he hears the rooster crow. And to add pain on top of pain, Luke tells us that Jesus must have been outside at that moment because Luke reveals to us that at that moment, Jesus turned and made eye contact with Peter. And he runs and he begins to weep. He has betrayed Christ and he is hopeless. And scripture immediately transitions into Judas's remorse. 27, one through 10. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. And he went away and he hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And taking counsel together, they bought with the money the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. You see, we cut away immediately from Peter's remorse to Judas's remorse. Peter leaves and begins to weep. 
But Judas leaves and he tries to make physical amends for what he did. But we must note that while Judas attempts to make this right on his own, he never repents. We know that Peter will go from his remorse and he will be restored by Christ. He will go and he will repent. He will turn from his sin and he will come back to Christ. And we must not make the mistake of saying that because Judas feels bad, that he somehow repented. See, Peter will eventually return. But Judas, in his guilt, after attempting to make it right on his own, goes and kills himself. Judas thinks that returning the money may make things better. He seeks solace with the chief priests, these men whom he betrayed his Lord for. He goes and he seeks solace for them. And what do they do? They heap the blame back on himself. That's not our business. Go see to your guilt yourself. And he does. He tries to. This faulty priest gives no hope. The priest condemns him further. You see, the hope that Judas needed was marching to the cross. But Judas throws the money into the temple and he leaves and he kills himself. And then the priests begin to debate, what are we going to do with the money? It's blood money. It's blood money that they had given. So they buy a field with it. And again, notice that theme in Matthew. This was done to fulfill the scriptures. Verses 11 through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him. This is Pilate, the governor, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, you yourself say it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had delivered him over to him. Now, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil did he do? But they were crying out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Now, when Pilate saw that he was accomplished nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. See, Jesus is brought before Pilate. And Pilate asks him that question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus again answers in that ancient affirmative, you yourself have said it. What you just said is true. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. And the priests bring their accusations against Jesus to Pilate and Jesus is silent. I mean, Pilate is clearly shaken by this, right? I mean, 
Think about it. If you were a judge over someone, the first thing you expect someone to do is defend themselves. The guilty defend themselves to no end. How much more would an innocent person defend themselves? If Jesus really is guilty of no crime, Pilate's expectation is that Christ will defend himself. But Jesus is silent. And again, this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Pilate seeks at this point to get Jesus off the hook by the use of a tradition. See, Pilate had a tradition that during Passover, what he would do for the Jewish people is he would offer them the freedom of one criminal. And so Pilate thinks he has the game set. He knows that Jesus has only been turned over because of the jealousy of the high priest, because the high priest hated him. He knows that Jesus is innocent. His wife even sends him a message saying, have nothing to do with this innocent man. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing. And so he goes, who am I going to put up there with Jesus? A notorious criminal, an insurrectionist and murderer named Barabbas. And so he offers them the choice between a clear criminal who deserved the death penalty. On one hand, Barabbas. And on the other hand, Jesus. But the chief priests had stirred up the crowds. And the unthinkable happens. When Pilate asked the question, whom do you want me to release for you? The expectation, the clear and obvious choice is that the crowd would cry out, Jesus. Of course they would cry out, Jesus. This miracle worker, this innocent man. But the unthinkable happens and the crowd cries out, Barabbas. And Pilate asks, what what am I to do with Jesus? And they cry out again in the unthinkable, crucify him. But this is incredible because the crowd is so wild and passionate that Matthew notes that Pilate gives Jesus over to them in order to avoid a riot. This is textbook bloodthirst. Many times in history, you can see people get so worked up, so hungry for the death of a person or a group of people that they're willing to riot in order to kill someone. I love old Western movies. This might seem like a weird segue, but I love old Western movies. And you don't have to watch too many of them to know that there's a common theme. Someone gets murdered in the dusty old town and the marshal comes and takes the person who's accused of it puts him into the jail cell, and the crowds are beating on the jail cell door. Give him over to us, Marshal. We want him. Hang him high, right? And so the Marshal has to make a choice and has to load the prisoner into a wagon and defend the prisoner against these bloodthirsty townsfolk who are demanding the blood of this accused man because that person can't, clearly can't get a fair trial. Well, this is a similar picture, right? These people are so bloodthirsty that Pilate is afraid that a riot is going to break out in the city if he doesn't give them an innocent man's blood. And so Pilate attempts to wash his hands and say, all right, this is yours. This is on you. And what do the people cry? His blood be on us and on our children. That's very familiar biblical language. We've been going over this. That's covenantal language. 
These people are so worked up, they're so riotous, they're so filled with hatred and bloodlust for Christ that they're willing to invoke the guilt on their children. Let me ask you this, how much do you have to hate someone to say his blood's gonna be on my son? That's a deep level of hatred. That's a demonic, evil level of hatred. And so Jesus is handed over to these people and it picks up. It says he was scourged. And then when the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. When they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. See, the physical torment of Christ is resumed. We know from the previous verses that this is when Jesus was scourged. Those of you who don't know, the process of scourging, they used a special whip known as the cat of nine tails. The Romans had perfected torture. And what this whip was, was it had nine different lashes on it. And they would embed pieces of bone and glass, bits of metal, old nails into this whip. And they would begin to lash people. And they gave 39 lashes because 40 was enough to kill a grown man. But this whip would grab onto flesh and begin to peel flesh off. People's bones were known to be thrown from their bodies during this process. And so Jesus is tied to the post and he's whipped, he's scourged with this. And then they take him from there and they place this scarlet robe on him and this crown of thorns. They press a crown of thorns into his head. And they begin to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. But they didn't realize what they were doing. The truth is Jesus is king. And they were mocking him. They hated him. This is horrific. The Lord of glory is here and he's beaten. He's cut. He's mocked. He's scorned. He's spit upon. And then they load the crossbeam on his shoulders and begin to march him up to Golgotha. But often after a scourging, a person was so physically weak from blood loss, from loss of flesh, that they could not bear the weight of the cross. And so Jesus likely stumbles and falls and they find a man from the crowds named Simon who lived in Cyrene and they pull him into service and they throw the crossbar on him and he bears the cross up the hill and Christ follows behind. In verses 33 through 44, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he did not want to drink it. And when they had crucified him and divided his garments among themselves by casting lots and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the sanctuary or the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had, crucified, who were, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Jesus has marched up the hill to Golgotha. This was a place of execution. Two criminals were there, one on each side, and Jesus is crucified. This means that they took spikes, and they put three spikes through him, one in each wrist, and they stretched his arms out on the cross, and then they laid his feet together and put one through his feet into the wood. Crucifixion was a horrific way to die. You technically die by drowning in your own blood during crucifixion. It's asphyxiation. Because you cannot breathe unless you press up with your legs. And so you're forced to press up on the spike through your feet. And so Jesus is is given one of the most horrific executions in history. But then we notice something interesting. We begin to see that theme in Matthew again, the fulfillment of prophecy. The wicked men begin to cast lots for his clothing. Psalm 22, verse 18, Psalm 22 being a messianic prophecy, says this, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. A sign is placed above Jesus' head, and it says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The sign is placed here as mockery, but the message is true. The mockery continues. People begin to jeer at him. They say he can't save himself. But then something spectacular happens. The elders and the priests who are mocking Jesus begin to do something very, very bizarre. They begin to mock Jesus by quoting scripture to him. They begin to quote from Psalm 22. And as I mentioned, Psalm 22 is a messianic prophecy. It's about this moment. It is prophetically speaking about the crucifixion of Christ. And this tells us something about God's plan. The chief priests are wickedly quoting this passage, likely thinking that they're clever. However, this passage was written long, long before this event. And it was written about this event. This is what they say. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. See, God had sovereignly inspired those words about this moment. And here, this wicked generation is quoting this verse about Christ to Christ. And this shows us that God's divine plan is somehow so intricate that it extends over the very words that are spoken. And this is what they're saying. They are directly quoting Psalm 22, 7 through 8. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour, that is noon, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them were saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In the sixth hour, that is noon, midday, darkness falls. It becomes dark as night. And then Jesus takes up the cry and quotes his line from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. But the people don't hear him correctly. They hear Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and they just focus on the word Eli, and they think that he's calling for Elijah to save him. We must remember, Jesus at any moment, at any moment in this experience, could say the word, and thousands of angels, armies of angels, would immediately come and strike everyone dead and remove him from that cross. He stays on the cross of his own will. And in the same manner, Jesus' death is recorded, and it's so fascinating because Jesus does not have his life taken from him. Now, that does not mean it's wrong to say that they killed him. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that, yes, they did put him to death. But the wording is so specific here. Jesus did not have his life taken from him. He lets go, and he gives his life. He yields up his spirit, and he dies. The Gospel of John, verses 19, verse 30, or chapter 19, verse 30, says this. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That word, it is finished, is tetelestai. It means the work is done. Christ, on the cross, has drank the cup of the wrath of God. And the cup is now empty. And he says, the work is is done and he gives up his spirit and he dies Christ not murdered in this sense willingly dies when the work is completed and closing out our final verses verses 51 through 53 and behold the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from the top to bottom And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I'd love to dwell on this, but we just don't have time. The reaction, there is a cosmic and a physical reaction to the sacrifice of Christ. The veil is torn and dead faithful saints come back to life. Their tombs are rolled open and they begin to show themselves to many. There is a physical reaction, a universal reaction to the death of Christ. Verses 54 through 56. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was God's son. And many women who were looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, were ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You see, again, we see the the, the Roman centurion say, yes, Clearly, Jesus was right. He sees what's happening around him. The earthquake, the darkness, the resurrection of the dead. And he goes, he was right. And we see, thankfully, Jesus was not alone. But again, we don't have time to dwell on that. Verses 57 through 66. Now, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Christ. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen cloth 
and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, Christ is buried. On the next day, after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, order order for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone, the word of God. See, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, I think he's worth noting for just a moment because Joseph was a disciple of Christ. And I think it's worth noting because, yes, while some of the disciples came back to Christ as he was on the cross, it is beautiful to me to know that someone cared enough to care for Christ's body. That's a beautiful thing to me. I mean, we honor one another because we're not Gnostics. We don't think our bodies themselves are evil, right? Like we don't think this flesh and bone is evil. We know there's something special about our bodies. So Joseph is a disciple. He's clearly a faithful man. And he takes Christ's body and he places it in his own tomb. He's clearly very, very wealthy in order to have his own tomb before he died. (laughs) Clearly a very wealthy man. We don't think about that very much. I mean, I don't have a coffin sitting in my basement, but I'm also not that wealthy. So, but he lays Jesus in the tomb and then it's sealed up. And we see the chief priests put a guard on the tomb. And this is the end of this passage. Christ has died. He's in the grave. You see, the crucifixion and the resurrection are two of probably the most important doctrines in all of Christianity. You've heard me many times in this church say that we must learn to differentiate between the primary, the secondary, and the tertiary things, right? Like there are things that, there are hills we die on, right? As Christians, there are hills that, nope, I will die on this this hill. I mean, I will help you get the wood to burn me at the stake over this issue. The crucifixion and the resurrection are two of those issues. But why? What is so significant about the crucifixion of Christ? Well, perhaps the most pertinent question is why did Christ have to die? What is it that demanded the death of Christ? You see, we just read this account. We just read 105 verses that detail the crucifixion of Christ. It goes into great detail. Clearly, all of the gospel authors thought that this was pertinent. This was central. But this is... This is a traumatic event that's recorded, right? This is not a light, fluffy thing to study. This is traumatic. And honestly, it kind of makes us squirm a little bit. I mean, I can't picture the scourging of Christ without becoming really physically uncomfortable. But it's more than just the physical trauma. You see, Christ was the single most loving, most perfect, most righteous man that ever lived. He was truly God, truly man. He was perfect. He is God in human flesh. He never once sinned. Now, we often as people object to the idea of bad things happening to good people, right? Bad things happen and we go, well, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, arguably, if we really study scripture, we know that that has only ever happened once. If we're really honest, all humanity is sinful. 
We are all sinners. So therefore, I hate to break it to you this way, but a bad thing has never happened to you, a good person. Now, bad things happen to bad people. We know that. But in this account, we have the only recorded account of an evil and wicked thing happening to a good person. And we should look at this death as a shock. Right? Like this, this account should shock us. And I think it should shock us in multiple ways. Because we expect bad things to happen, you know, as a result of bad things. Right? Like when we sin, it's not that shocking when a bad thing happens. Right? That doesn't mean that it's not evil. We obviously, as Christians, we object to evil in the world. Right? And we seek to rectify evil. We seek to make right evil. But it's not that shocking. You know, I have, a, I have a coffee tumbler. Thomas has the same coffee tumbler. And on it, it says, heathens gonna heave. And basically what that coffee tumbler means is sinners sin, right? So we're not that shocked when bad things happen to sinners. But in this account, we have the only good man who ever lived and he is given a horrific, one of the most painful, horrific deaths ever. And he was perfect. He never lied. He never coveted. He never stole. He always perfectly obeyed God. He always loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he always loved his neighbor as himself. Now, if I were just to tell you about someone like that, if I were just to tell you about a person who always loved his neighbor as himself, who got that command perfect, our expectation would be that would probably be the most popular man on earth, right? That guy's got to be loved by everyone. But that's not what we see. In this passage, we have the person who always loved everyone perfectly. And the crowd was so thirsty for his blood, they were going to riot against the Roman government to murder him. Why? Why? This is the central question as to why did Jesus have to die? To understand why they hated him so much, we have to understand what our sin is. What is sin? You've heard me quote many times, R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic treason. I think that's probably one of the best descriptions of sin I've ever heard. Sin is an affront to a holy God. We've been over this many times. I think as Christians, we know this. But, but, but think about it. God is perfectly holy. Never does anything wrong. He's righteous all the time. What does a righteous judge have to do to wickedness? I mean, if we have a judge in a judicial system, and that judge sits on his judge's seat with his powdered wig and his little gavel, and a murderer comes before him and is convicted and it is clear, it is obvious beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person committed murder. And that judge goes, eh, oh well, you're free to go. Is that a good judge or a bad judge? That's a bad judge, right? Like, if that's clear, a wicked judge lets people off for crimes. So what does a good judge do? A good judge rightly judges those crimes. Well, God is the perfect judge, right? He is the perfect judge overall. He's holy. He's righteous. He's good. And we have committed cosmic treason against him. 
All sin demands the death penalty. I mean, we think, we think of Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, right? These very familiar passages, the wages of sin is death, right? Like these, these are familiar to us. We've heard these. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So everyone has sinned and our sin has earned all of us death. Well, if we stop there, we're kind of hopeless, right? We have no hope at that point. But there is a promised hope. Christ, God the Son, in eternal unity with the Father, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son came to earth, took on human flesh. Christ became a man, truly God, truly man, right? The old confession, vera homos, vera dei. Truly God, truly man. He was man, therefore he could pay the debt that mankind owed. He was God, therefore he could forgive sins. He came, never sinned, and he died in our place. There's a legal term within scripture, imputation. What this means is on the cross, your sin and mine, if you trust in Christ, that means your sin was legally attributed to Christ. And his righteousness is legally attributed to you. It is the judge saying, this man is dying in your place. And you are living in his. That is the hope. Christ Truly man, truly God, died in our place. But now we have to ask a question. So there is hope. But now we have to ask the question, who is the hope for? Right? This does no good if it's not for us. Right? Then we're still in the same place. Well, this is in essence what Peter was asked in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends and Peter preaches a sermon declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. And so listen to this. Here's a couple snippets from this sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. So it was impossible for him, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter continues on. The sermon is longer than this. That's the central part of the sermon. But listen to the people's response. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord, our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this crooked generation. And they received his word and were baptized. That's a beautiful passage. They heard Christ was the Messiah, but you put him to death. But God raised him from the dead and these men are cut to the heart. And their response is, what must I do to be saved? How can this promise be for me? How can I be forgiven of my sins and stand right before God? 
And what does Peter say? Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. You see, turning away from something necessitates that you turn to something. So you turn away from your sin and you turn to Christ and you proclaim that through baptism. For this promise is for you, your children, and all whom God calls. The message is for everyone God calls. So this is the question. Have you repented and turned away from your sins? Jesus died in the place of all who will place their faith in him. That is why he died. You can be forgiven of your sins. Are you under the burden and the weight of your sins? You can be washed clean. But I also recognize that statistically most of you, if not all of you, are Christians. That means that you have repented of your sins. My next question is, have you been baptized? If not, come speak to me. Be baptized. Proclaim your faith in Christ. But if you have turned from your sin and you have been baptized, I give you good news. You are no longer in your sins. You're forgiven. You are washed clean. And I know sometimes we can get so familiar with this message that we take it for granted. But think of it. You are not in your sins. I've often said that if there was one thing that I could pull over from the Catholic Church, if there's one thing that I wish we could pull over, it would be the act of confession. Not that I can absolve you of your sins. I can't forgive you. I don't have that power. But, but think of this. How amazing is it to have someone hear what you have done, look you in the eye, and say, you are forgiven. You are clean. You are not in your sins. If we believe that, if we got that, how encouraged would we be? How uplifted would we be? How would we walk out of these doors and go into this community and do the work of the ministry knowing we are washed clean? I have good news for you. After being baptized, it says that these men, these 3,000 men, not counting the women and children, dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles and the breaking of bread. What does that mean? The breaking of bread. Yes, we know they ate together in each other's homes. But that phrase, the breaking of bread, was just instituted in the last passage. Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. He took the cup after the meal and said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. When we partake around the Lord's table, we are communing with Christ in a real way. And in essence, as we take the bread and the cup, as we take the body and the blood, we are hearing God say, you are forgiven. Our salvation is not through works. It's not through merit. I didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. We are saved through the body and the blood of Christ. And this is why Paul says, as often as we do this act, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We've heard much scripture this morning. Remember, the reading of God's word is hearing God speak. But now we have an opportunity this morning. This week, we're doing much ministry in the community. We have the opportunity this morning to come and commune with Christ 
in a real way. To be encouraged and uplifted because we're going out into a real fight. Lead is not the easiest area. This place needs the gospel. It does. But we are not alone. As we walk out these doors, we can know that we have heard from God speaking directly to us from his word. And we can have been in the presence of Christ. So this week, as we go out to do the ministry, let's be encouraged by the word and the sacrament. As we go to do the work of the ministry, let us be encouraged by this. So this morning, if it is your confession that Christ is Lord, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the table is open to you. And I do not give you anything new, but something old. That Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, this is my body. This is his body, broken for you. So this morning, if you are a Christian, I invite you to come up the middle aisle and out through the sides and come and take of the body and the blood. Come now. This morning, let us be encouraged that it is through the broken body of Christ for us that we are forgiven. Let us take the bread together.
Let's remember that the blood of Christ has washed us free of all guilt. The Apostle Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's take the cup. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me? And on your handout, let's close in the singing of doxology, which simply means praise. <clears throat> Would you mind starting us out, Thomas? Oh, yeah. My voice is shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, you read like three chapters of the Bible? Okay. <laughs> praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here for you this week is that the Lord would bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you until we meet again and study the resurrection of Christ. Amen.